One of the biggest boundaries I've set in my life is around my time. If I can outsource something, I'm going to do it. And this is why I love HelloFresh. HelloFresh does all the shopping and meal planning for you. Ingredients arrive at your doorstep pre-portioned and ready to cook, along with pictured step-by-step recipe cards. This allows me to spend more time doing the things I love, like spending time with my family and recording this podcast. To save on America's number one meal kit, go to hellofresh.com slash 50home and use code 50home for 50% off plus free shipping. That's hellofresh.com slash 50home and use code 50home for 50% off plus free shipping. My guest today is Brady Nathan, a mother who shares the story of her late son, Jack. Before his passing, Jack started the Happy Jack World Project with the goal of helping other kids who also struggled with their mental health. I'm Whitney Goodman. Welcome to the Calling Home Podcast. I'm glad you're here. A listener note, this podcast contains themes and discussions of suicidality, drug usage, and overdose. If you feel like those topics might be too overwhelming or sensitive with you, it's okay to skip this episode. So as parents, we want our children to be happy. And it can be really hard to hear when our child comes to us and tells us that isn't the case. And although it isn't always easy to understand, the most important thing is to listen to what our child is telling us and try to not go straight into doing what we think is the fix. I really appreciate Brady coming on today, not only to share her son's story, but also because she speaks so candidly about the growing danger of fentanyl and recreational drug use, especially among college-age youth. Let's dive into our conversation. So my son is, in essence, Happy Jack. He's the one who created Happy Jack. It's actually a name bestowed upon him from a casting director when he did a Pampers commercial way back when. He had this like big gaping smile. But as he got older, he did struggle with anxiety and depression. And uh, he would often get lost in loud music, mostly Mac Miller. And uh, he would paint in terms of like using art therapy to, I guess, ease his mind, as he would say. It was the one place where he sort of found this piece. And he turned to me one day and he said, I have an idea. What if I could use my love of art and painting as a way to help others? And by that, he meant to use his designs. He pressed them on apparel, which is how he started in his dorm room, and sell them to other kids while being transparent about what Happy Jack was all about. And that was being open and honest about who you are, owning who you are, being non-judgmental, having it be okay if you struggle with anxiety or depression or whatever else you're wrestling with. But he just gave people a safe space. And I think that at age, you know, 19, that's an unusual place to be. So many kids just still carry like this incredible stigma surrounding it. And Jack just wanted to remove that stigma and he sort of wore it like a badge of honor He launched Happy Jack um, over COVID on June 7th, and I tragically lost my son about a month later. Um, But I will say, which I'm really proud of, is that after his first week of sales, he donated $1,000 to the Child Mind Institute. That's awesome. He did that solo, you know, unbeknownst to me. I learned about it on Instagram. So I thought it was just amazing the difference he wanted to make. 
Mm-hmm. I love to hear that about him. And it sounds like that he was so empathetic. Yes. And was able to really like be vulnerable in a way that would help other people, which is such a gift. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he helped me in terms of being more transparent about my own struggles. And even though he's not here physically, he did give me the courage to start speaking on TikTok. It took me, you know, about three years to just be comfortable to say, my son made a mistake. And, you know, he went to a party one night, took what he thought was a Percocet, and he did not wake up. And that's very hard to say out loud. And still today, I mean, I well up with tears just saying it, but, you know, it's a mistake that he can't learn from. So I'm hoping that other kids can learn from his mistake. Sorry if that's making me emotional as well. (laughs) I am uh... I will admit I am hormonal today as well. So <laughs> just flows out of me. Um, but, you know, I think, I think you're, first of all, I, I appreciate you sharing that with me. And I know that this is such a hard thing to talk about. And I think as a parent, to be able to say, my kid made a mistake, you know, it was a mistake that cost him his life. And, and also hold that in the same space of saying, you know, my son also struggled with his mental health. I hear from a lot of parents who are wondering like how they can support their adult child or their teen who is struggling with their mental health. And I'm wondering like, is there anything you would want them to know? Is there anything that you did that you thought was great that you wish you would have done differently now that you're looking back? A few things, actually. When he was younger, I remember this so specifically. I can visualize him sitting on my kitchen counter. I even remember what he was wearing, flannel button down and Timberland boots. And he looked at me and he said, I'm not happy. And my first gut reaction was, what could this child possibly be unhappy about? He had incredible loving parents, loving siblings and abundance of friends, seemingly not needing anything for sure from where I stood. I wish I took him more seriously. I wish I stopped to um, think about something other than something material or something tangible that perhaps would make him happy. It maybe would have given me an edge or to get ahead of the game instead of realizing it a couple of years later that mm-hmm. his unhappiness had to be filled by himself. And it was this hole that I think he tried to fill for a long time with meaningless possessions. And, you know, it's something that he grew into. So I would say just be aware. Um, listen, don't totally discount your child if they say they're not happy when you don't think they have a reason to be, but validate their feelings. And then I would also say, you know, every child's different, right? And I just wanted my son to be happy and I didn't care what that looked like. So of course I wanted him to take the traditional route and go to college, which he did. And you envision your child sort of having this life that you led. And I think more parents need to understand that your child's life is not necessarily yours and that they might take a different path. So if they want to take a gap year, if they don't go to college at all, it's okay. It doesn't mean you've failed as a parent. It doesn't mean your child is not going to be successful in life. And I think more parents could perhaps follow the lead of their child in 
some of the life decisions. I know we always try and guide them to do what we think is best, but I think in instances where you have a child that struggles, I think they need to be listened to. What you just said is like so relatable. I think I've heard thousands of parents say, you know, what does my child have to be unhappy about? Or what could they be struggling with? Because we see their life from such a different perspective as an adult, you know, than than what they're experiencing. And that advice to really like listen and try to understand their perspective, not just what you see is so powerful and it's really hard to do. It is. You know, especially when you want them to be happy, you're just like, I'll throw anything at the problem, you know, to try to fix this. And it's it's really, really difficult. And I love the next thing you said about, you know, letting your child kind of take the lead over their life, which is also so difficult. It is, but sometimes they might know what's best for them. Yeah. Based on how they're feeling because it's it's not something you can't jump inside their bodies to know. I remember him lying on his bed curled up in a ball and it I thought it'd been the happiest moment. He had just launched Happy Jack and I guess it was sort of anticlimactic. I don't know, you know, but I remember him saying, I don't want dinner, I can't eat and he went downstairs and then I went to check on him and he just wanted more. He wanted to do more. Always he carried this mm. like weight of the world on his shoulders and he believed that he was put on this planet for a purpose and that's an incredible burden to carry you know i used to say to him why is it your responsibility but he just felt like it was to help other kids who are struggling and mm-hmm. when i try and rationalize his passing or see a silver lining in it somehow. I do come back to his belief that he was put here for a reason. And I do believe he was meant to save lives. Mm -hmm. It seems like that's absolutely what's happening. But I know on, on some level, it's always like, I wish that he could be here. Of course. To do that. It seems like you were incredibly close with your son and that you had a real awareness what was going on with him. And I want to highlight that because I think it gets misconstrued sometimes that kids that are struggling or that, you know, have these outcomes don't have parents that are involved in their life. And I think sometimes these things, there's a stigma about that and it can happen to anyone. And that's, that's what's really scary, I think. And that's what's so powerful about your message. I really appreciate you saying that because you think it's a direct reflection on you and what you did wrong. You know, should I blame it on my divorce? Should I blame it on, yeah, completely torture myself? But, Mm -hmm. you know, he did talk to a therapist. We got him medication when we believed he needed it. And I tried everything and anything. And I don't think that because of how he tragically passed, I don't think that anything would have changed that outcome. It's ironic that, you know, he was a mental health advocate and he passed in the fashion that he did. And I think a lot of people make the assumption that it was his choice. Mm -hmm. And yes, it was his choice to take a Percocet that night, but unknowingly that Percocet was laced with fentanyl. So no, it was not his choice not to wake up the next morning. 
Right. Yeah. And I think that's what is so important to remember is that there are teenagers all around the world, adults, people who choose to take substances and they don't have that outcome. And so we don't tell the same story. Right. And now it's like you're talking about this retroactive, like, well, what went wrong kind of hunt that can make you go crazy as a parent. It can be really difficult. I mean, I remember one of my friends likened it to like being hit by a bus. Yeah. But once I started talking, I will say, especially on Instagram, which is like the 18 to 24 demographic that tends to be following us over there, you know, the kids were like, you want to play, you got to pay. And I just felt so void of compassion or empathy. And I get it. And I wish the world were as black and white as, as everyone might see it. But there's, Jack used to say, it's okay to live in the gray. And there's a lot of gray. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think the way that your son passed impacted like how people approached his passing or the way that they offered you support? I had one of his friends actually, once we got the results and found out exactly what happened, I had one of his friends say to me, it could have been any one of us. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a harsh reality to that. He just was the one who didn't, you know, wake up. And it's a, a game of Russian roulette. Yeah. You know, we knew about fentanyl in 2020, but not like we know today. It, it is not as in your face as it is today. But I have a relationship with many of his friends who are still going. And I do, you know, I was the house that all the boys came to and hung out at. And I loved loved it. I loved his friends dearly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I still do. And um, I hurt for them, not just me. I hurt for them to be, to lose a friend at that age and be impacted by trauma and and tragedy at 19 is unfathomable. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, as a mom, but I feel sad for the kids. I really do. Absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's painful in its own way, you know, regardless of, of who was close to him, but it sounds like his life had a huge impact on a lot of people. It's very consistent, you know, in terms of the notes that I received that, you know, Jack made me realize what was important in life and, Jack poured all his energy in what he loved the most and the people he loved the most. And he was non-judgmental and he told me not to care what other people think. And again, consistent across the board with friend after friend, people that I never even heard of or knew or people he didn't even meet but had spoken to said he impacted their life. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Do you think he realized that? Like what an impact he had on people? I don't know. That's a good question. I hope so. I think now looking down, he can see that. But at the time... For sure. God, he just wanted to help everyone. He was like the most lovable child. You know, when he hugged you, he hugged you with Mm -hmm. every ounce of his being. And we were incredibly close. Incredibly close. And... Like you said earlier, I would have done anything. And I have another child who I have to wake up for. So that's what I was going to ask you. You you do have another child, or is it younger, older? I have a daughter who um, just turned 20. So she's younger than Jack. And um, she has her own set of, of struggles. And 
you know, worrying is the full-time job. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit about how that impacted your family, you know, just for anyone to help them understand what this type of loss can do to the family dynamic or the system? Yeah. I would say that everybody handles grief differently. I'm the emotional one for sure. And Jack was sort of like me, you know, very articulate about how I feel and (laughs) unashamed. And this is me. This is, you know, good, bad, sad, happy. This is me. Jack's dad is more angry, I would say, at the circumstances surrounding it, which I totally, totally get. And then my daughter is, I think, the one who believes she she has to be strong for Jack's dad and I. So she didn't really give herself space to to grieve and to be sad. And um, it comes in waves, but, you know, there's nothing I can do to take her pain away other than listen and be there for her and hold her hand. Yeah, it's hard to lose an older sibling like that. She idolized him. And to watch your parents be in pain at the same time. Yeah. I'm glad that you have her. Yeah. She's my happy place. (laughs) It's good. I have uh, a huge support system, wonderful man in my life, amazing friends, parents, and I'm grateful. I often say I'm like the luckiest unlucky person I know. (sighs) Yeah. You know, you mentioned in, I think it was one of your videos that I watched, that you understand what it's like to be a parent who is worried all the time, you know, especially when you had a child who needed so much from you or who was struggling. And I'm wondering if you can tell us more about that experience. I mean, like I said, worrying for me is a full-time job. And I, I don't say that lightly. It's cliche to say you're only as happy as your least unhappy child. But for me, it's true. I, I always put my kids before me. That's just who I am. I'm not saying it's the right or wrong thing to do, but that's how I parented. I, I just always wanted <clears throat> them to be happy. I don't even know what the original question was that you asked me. I'm, that's okay. I think you're you're speaking to that. Is like, how did you handle you know having a child that you knew was struggling while also being a mom and a person? and a parent to another child. I think, um, you know, I was desperate to find anything to like fix. And it's really a very helpless feeling to not be able to. And when you have another child who seems to like coast and appear seemingly fine and just be upbeat all the time, you tend to say like, oh, they're okay. But that's not fair. It's not fair to them. And, and I get it. I grew up with a, a brother who needed more attention than I did. And I was the one who they mm-hmm. said, oh, she's fine. I get it. And I don't think she feels any less loved, but I would have just preferred to be more cognizant about it and know that, you know, her mental health was equally as important as Jack's, even though he openly struggled about it because people don't openly struggle. So for her, she's not as forthcoming. So I really wouldn't have known if she were struggling. She's she's gotten better and is more in tune with her feelings, but it's it's harder for her. Everybody's different. Yeah, it's it's hard as a parent though, because I think a lot of times you're just like triaging what's happening around you, you know? And the, <laughs> the one that's like bleeding the most that seems to be screaming the loudest is where your attention 
goes. And I don't think any parent out there is knowingly being like, ah, I'm just going to let that one coast over there. It's really just like you go into survival mode in a lot of ways of like, I got to try to get this one up here. And that can take all your attention and all your energy. Yes. It took every ounce of me and still does sometimes. You know, Happy Jack has become this, you know, larger than life presence. And she doesn't want to be known as Happy Jack's sister. She wants to be herself. And I respect that. So I try my best to gauge her involvement around what she's comfortable with. If she wants to do a fundraiser, she can decide that on her own. But I I don't want to push it on her because she deserves to be her own entity. It's really insightful, I think, and and nice of you as a mother, because it seems like this Happy Jack project has been a big part of your grieving process. Can you talk about how it's been helpful to you or not helpful in some ways? Well, it gave me a reason to get out of bed. I think in, in the beginning when I didn't, um, have the strength. I had my friends, you know, packing up orders in my basement, literally. But I eventually got out of bed and it gave me something to do, somewhere to put my grief, you know, whether it was fulfilling orders or ordering mm-hmm. product or unpacking boxes. It, it gave me a focus. I laugh with one of my friends. She's like, I think you would have been in the corner, like rocking and eating crayons. You would have been so miserable if you didn't have anything to focus on. (laughs) It just made me laugh because it did save me in a sense. And now, you know, we're really focused on creating awareness and trying to be more forthcoming as, you know, it's become a complete epidemic the um, opioid crisis, specifically fentanyl. So I'm going to continue to do what we can. I mean, we've donated over $100,000 to various foundations. And and it's amazing. It's because of Jack. You know, he takes all the credit. This is his company. He started it. He formed the LLC. He wanted to give money away and he did it his first week. So we're following in his footsteps and it feels really good to um, impact other kids in a way that we have in his honor and in his memory. Mm -hmm. I think that's so amazing and just such a testament to your dedication to carrying forward his legacy. Throughout your work, have you met or gotten to know other parents who have been in a similar situation to yours? I have. And, you know, I say everyone grieves differently. So there's um, a group on Facebook called Lost Voices of Fentanyl, and it's only parents who lost their children the same way I have. Mm. I think there's like 30,000 of us. Okay. And I did not find solace in it. I did not find comfort in, in reading about everyone else's pain. And as much as everyone said you should be in a support group, like it made me feel more helpless. Interesting. That I was never going to yeah. be able to move on. I mean, these are women who are barely keeping their head above water, not just moms, plenty of dads too, siblings. And it just makes me more sad. And um, there's, you know, when I started talking on, on TikTok and I couldn't even believe the amount of comments, my cousin, my sister, my brother, my son, everybody knows someone. And it just makes me so sad. And I know how they feel. 
And it almost makes me sad that they have to feel the way, you know, I feel I'm just more empathetic. So yes, I have met other parents, but I think it just makes me sit more sad that there's so many of us. No, I, I really appreciate you sharing that perspective because I think there's there is a big belief that like, you know, you should surround yourself with people that have been through what you've been through or that it will help you in your grief. And I think for some people that's true, but it's not true for everyone. And it's important to have these other perspectives on what grieving looks like. You know, that you can all go through the same thing, but have such completely different outcomes or desires after you go through that. Once I started talking on TikTok in the videos at Happy Jack World, people came out. They wrote, you're so strong. You're so brave. And I'm thinking, I'm sitting in my house behind just like, I don't feel strong. I don't feel brave. I don't see strength. I feel like I don't even know who I'm talking to, but if it helps one person, you know, then I'm grateful for that. But yeah, I don't see myself the same way others see me. It feels sort of safe to stare into a camera and just speak. So I do appreciate everyone, you know, their kind words and a lot of the women DM me and I love talking to them. I love, you know, it, it's this whole like, you don't know me, but yeah. and I write, like, I do know you. We're moms. What do you mean I don't know you? I know you. I know how you feel about your children and what it feels like to love unconditionally. And I do. I know you. <laughs> yeah. I, I know you better than you realize I know you. So go back to what you were saying about like that you're so brave and you're so strong. I have to like self-disclosure. I I hate when people say that stuff to me when I'm going through something that doesn't feel like there was any other choice. Like when it's like, you know, what what option do I have here? I the one of the worst things happened to me that could happen in my life and I've, you know, I have the choice to either like stay down or go and do this. And to me when when somebody is like saying that back and you're having this feeling of like, well, this is just what I have to do. It's such a testament for just like how in alignment you probably are with what you're doing and your mission because it it seems like it kind of just feels like a non-negotiable. Like I have to get on, I have to share this message. I I have to speak up because this is a problem, you know, this is a crisis and if if every parent turns inward on themselves and and feels like a deep sense of shame, for this happening to their child or going through this, then we will never hear about it, you know? And so it, it takes those special few, you know, that for whatever reason, that's the direction you went with your grief, I think, to be able to make a change. Yeah, I do think Jack was the impetus behind being able to muster up the courage to speak. And mm-hmm. I sort of felt like if he could do it, Surely I can. And I think Jack's dad and I feel a huge responsibility to share his story, not just for the parents, but mostly for the kids. Absolutely. So I know you're doing a lot of work to talk about the fentanyl crisis. What is something that you wish that people knew or understood about where we're at with that right now? I, I want kids to understand the reality that it can happen to them. And my son was no different of a child who believed nothing would ever happen. 
he was the one who told me not to worry over and over and over again. And I would say to these kids, we worry. <laughs> we worry a lot because it can happen. And I used to tell my son stories. He's like, why do you keep telling me these stories? I said, because I want them to resonate and know that it could, this could easily be you. But he just never believed it. You know, I, I want these kids to see my son's face and identify with him and know that he's no different than any of them, you know? He played sports, he partied, he went to college, he was in a fraternity, like a seemingly regular kid. You know, it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care what your background is, socioeconomic <laughs> status, it doesn't matter. It's not um, necessarily uh, happening to addicts only. Right. That's a big misconception. Um, it's, again, a mistake you cannot learn from. So it's very, very, very real. And um, I know at some of the schools, they're giving out fent strips, which is a way that you can test the particular drug. You do have to um, have it dissolve in water in order to test it properly. And you have to test the entire thing. You cannot just test a piece of it because if you test the piece that doesn't have the fentanyl in it, you're as good as gone. So fentstrips.com is a, a very easy place to get. I think even Amazon sells them at this point. And I think everyone should have Narcan in their house, on their person, in their car. And Narcan um, is going to be made over the counter in all the major drugstores. I think it's $45. And it's just a nose spray. One spray up one nostril. If that doesn't do the trick, it's the other nostril. And, you know, hopefully you've saved a life. I never heard of it. 2020. I mean, a lot has changed in three years. A lot. I think what's so scary about fentanyl is like just the small amount that it takes, you know, to seriously harm someone or to kill them, that it feels like, you know, just a, a variable that you have to be so cautious about that maybe teenagers weren't dealing with, you know, 20 years ago when we're talking about recreational drug use, there was not this level of risk. No, it's literally grains of sand. It could fit on the tip of a pencil. Um, it's two milligrams, I believe, is a, a deadly dose. And, you know, I, I get asked this question, I don't understand why they're using it. I don't understand why they feel they need to use this as an additive. And my answer is because it makes the pills cheaper to manufacture. It makes the pills stronger and increases the volume of goods that they sell. So it all comes down to money. The pill press from the people who sell the pill press machines all the way down. It, it's all about money. I mean, did you see the Netflix show with the called Painkiller? I just finished it oh uh, over God. the weekend. Yeah. It was a difficult watch. So disturbing. Yeah. Very well done, though. I loved all the different avenues that they showed, like different types of people, different situations. I thought that was really well done. Yeah. And it was hard for, certainly hard for, for me to watch, but it just all, you know, in comparison, it just comes down to money. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, a lot of the people that got swept up in that epidemic were regular, normal, nice people, you know, and, and that's what I so appreciate about, about your work. And that I hope that people really take away from this episode is that this is unfortunately something that can touch any family and 
you can try your best, you know, to prevent it and to not have it happen to you. But I think we all have to be aware and prepared and not stigmatize or think ill of the families who have been touched by this. I appreciate you saying that. I really do. It means a lot to me. Yeah, of course. People are scared to talk about mental illness in their families or drug use or, you know, even when it's an accidental overdose, I think people are fearful of what people will say, what they will think. And so that's definitely something that I want to highlight is that like, this is not a moral or a personal failing in any way. Thank you. Yeah, of course. What I have learned is that those of us who did lose our children to fentanyl, we, and I will include myself in this, don't like to consider it an overdose because it's, again, completely, uh, you know, this unwillingness or unknowingly. And um, there's a strong belief that our children were murdered and they're marching in D.C. Mm -hmm. in just a few to say, you know, stop the killing. and. This is this is murder. So if you look at it as, as being poisoned, you know, perhaps you can have a different a different view of it. But totally. They didn't take a whole bottle of pills. Yeah. <laughs> that to me is overdose. Right. Absolutely. And I think that's something that that show, that painkiller show highlighted well was like in that situation, there was not really informed consent, you know, to begin using those substances. You didn't know what could happen or what would happen. And when there isn't informed consent, when you're not totally aware, it's not purposeful for it to go down that path. And it's not really a personal choice at that point. I saw something there as a mom who is pretty like well-connected that's trying to do something about Snapchat targeting kids. Have you seen this? Yeah. Dr. Laura Berman lost um, her son, Sammy, to fentanyl-laced cocaine. He was 16 years old. Yeah. Someone, I believe, added him as a friend on Snapchat. And he. this person was a drug dealer, basically with a menu of options. He chose cocaine right. and it was delivered to his door as if he ordered a pizza and it was a line of cocaine and it was a Super Bowl Sunday, as I understand, and he didn't wake up. So Dr. Berman is suing and pressing charges against Snapchat. I totally get that, you know, anger and, and the blame. Mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily go that route. And again, everyone heals and grieves differently. I'm tired of being angry and you know, I hope that she affects change, not just on Snapchat, but across all the social channels. But it is just so easy for our kids to screw up today. The access, whether it's friends of friends, whether it's through WhatsApp, whether it's through any of the, you know, Snapchat, Instagram, it doesn't even matter. It's just too easy. The access yeah, it's true. And when I saw that menu that the was sent on Snapchat, it looked like it was made for children, like the way it was. And so that's what's kind of so shocking and, and so difficult as a parent is like there are a lot of these third parties out there that know where your kids are. They know kind of what to do. And you're defenseless in a lot of those situations. Yes. And I'm angry for her. 
as well. And I, you know, I grieve for her and I, I know her pain and yeah, again, I, you know, everybody pours their grief into something and, and that's their mission. You know, my mission, I suppose, would be more focused on just general awareness. And I will say this and I don't, it, it, to say it out loud is very hard, but I do believe that our children, 70,000 of them, have to take some responsibility. And I say that as a parent who adored my child and would defend my child to the end of time. It was still his decision. And Unfortunately, I have to live with those consequences. You know, we tell our kids, your decisions, your consequence. Consequences are on you. But in this case, they're on me. They're on everybody who, who loved him. But no one put a gun to his head. And I, that's the reality of it. Whether it was easy for them to get or, or, or not, there was something in them that said, screw it, you know, and I can't change that fact. But I think it's important that we have to be aware of that component because it, it, it is a component of it all. It's very easy to, yes, I blame plenty of people, believe me, <laughs> you know, the cartel, those who make the pill press machines, those who cross the border. I, there's so many people to blame. But, you know, I also want to say to my son, like, I told you so. That's fair for you to feel that way. I think it's like, it's such an delicate like interplay of factors that is so specific on each child right of all the things combined that led to that moment and their decision yeah. is one part of that you know and their brain development at the time and who was around there's there's so many things yeah. outside of just you as a parent and what you taught them and i think that's what makes this so challenging is every situation that every story that we hear about has its own unique set of events that led to that moment. But I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing and you speaking with me today about this. I'd love to hear what's next for Happy Jack and where can people find you and support you? Sure. Jack set up happyjackworld.com and that a website, like I said, created by Jack. All of the designs are his. That's where he found peace in his design and his art. And in addition to that, we've also set up um, a foundation called the um, Happy Jack Foundation, Inc. And uh, you can donate directly on our site. And And we set it up because I, I it seemed like for those who wanted to just make a donation and not buy product, um, it seemed like the right thing to do. I, we believe that's something Jack would have done and it's allowed us to do so much good. So they're two separate entities, but we sort of roll one into the other. And then on Instagram, it's official happy Jack, which is also an account he started. If you scroll all the way down to the bottom, you'll see his original posts and then happy Jack world on, uh, on TikTok. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. And I hope everyone enjoys this episode. 